Okay, we are still in chapter 16 of the book of Genesis. Chapter 16 of Genesis. And we're going to read that portion again. We covered last week some of the, <clears throat> some of the things that, that uh, were happening here. And we're going to, we're going to key in on, a, on another new point here. So starting in Genesis chapter 16, verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. After Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife, Sarai, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband, Abram, as his wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done me be upon you. I gave my maid into your arms, but when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your maid is in your power. Do to her what is good in your sight. So Sarai treated her harshly, and she fled from her presence. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. He said, Hagar, Sarah's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. So the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress. Return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. And I want to skip down and read one other verse near the end. In verse 14 it says, uh, Therefore the well was called Ber-le-Roi. Behold, it is between Kadesh and Bered. Now the reason I read verse 14 is it's going to give us a location. All right, so... We read last time how Sarai was not able to have children. The promise had already been given to Abram that he would have children. And then the promise was renewed saying, not only, will you, not only are you going to have, have a descendant, not only are you going to have a, a seed, but that seed is going to come forth from your own body. But that never included Sarai. So at this point, Sarai doesn't know that she's included in this. And she's way past her childbearing age, and, and the scriptures tell us that uh, in the New Testament, actually. But, but if, if Abram's now 85 because he came into the land at 75, he's been in the land 10 years, so he's now 85. Sarai is 75 years old. And she takes Hagar, this Egyptian. And in verse 4 it says, And he went into Hagar, and when she conceived, she, she saw... And, and when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. So this problem was instigated actually by Hagar. Hagar despised Sarai once Hagar had conceived. Now, think about this. Hagar has, is probably a young woman, probably late teens or twenties, and... and uh, uh, she, is, she has been ministering to Sarai, 
and she's obviously not married at this point. She becomes Abram's wife. So now you have this young woman who is married to this guy who's 85 years old. Now, how would you like it if someone asked you and commanded you to marry some guy who's 85 years old? It's not like, yes. You know, it's, it's, it's probably like, oh, no, <laughs> you've got to be kidding me. And, and, uh, um, and so she's put into this situation. So this is not a pleasant situation for her. But she's a servant and she's told what to do. And the laws of the land at that time allowed this to be done, as we had talked about last time. But what we're trying to do is we're trying to look at this in this instant, not for the future, not for what this is going to mean for Hagar in the future, but what does it mean for her at this instant? Because very often we don't look at what this is going to mean for the future. What's this going to mean when I'm 50 or 60 or 70 years old? No, you're looking at what this is going to mean in my life right now. And when you think about Hagar's predicament here, she's put into this and now she gets pregnant and this guy is 85 years old, and so she looks upon Sarai with this contempt, with this, this despising. This was, uh, uh, this, this, uh, um, uh, disesteem that she's looking at her. And then that causes Sarai to get really upset. And Sarai starts treating her poorly because she complains to Abram. Abram says, hey, look, I'm out of here. There's nothing to do with me. Do with it whatever you want. And so you see this mess going on in the family. Sarai treats her harshly. And then in verse 7, in, in, verse, in, verse, uh, uh, in verse 6, it says, Behold, your maid is in your power. Do to her what is good in your sight. So Sarai treated her harshly and she fled from her presence. She fled from her presence. So she leaves, she leaves from this security of being with Abram and the, uh, the 70, the, the 318 men plus, because this, he had all these men to guard them and they were secure. They had a lot, they had allied themselves with the, the Amorites, this, this Amorite family. And so they, they were secure in this area. And this is near Hebron. This is near Hebron, uh, uh, which is just south of Jerusalem. But now she flees. Well, we know by the, this, the locations that it marks for her that this is south of Beersheba. So she has gone, um, well, I know it, 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 it's about a, a two-hour drive from, you know, if you were driving today, from Hebron to Beersheba. So she has walked many days to get to this point. And she is obviously on her way back to Egypt. This is down below Beersheba, and this is on her way back to Egypt. And that's what would be expected of a young woman who's in trouble, now pregnant. She's going back to the only place that she knows. And it's dangerous. I mean, it's dangerous for a young woman today to be walking just out at night. And here there was, you know, this is just a wilderness, and she's walking in this wilderness, this young girl. And it says in verse 7, Now the angel of the Lord found her by the spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. So think about it in this context. This is this young woman who's pregnant, who's being abused by her 
by, by Sarai. And now remember, Hagar is supposed to be now a wife. Now she's still a servant, but she's also a wife. So she has some standing here. But she's being terribly abused. So you have a young woman, pregnant, being abused, and she's taking off, taken off and she's run away. This is not unlike many young women today. This is a hard situation. This is difficult what she's going through. And sometimes we can just read the Bible and just read these names like, oh, no big deal. No, this is a big deal. You couldn't just call an Uber and say, take me back to Egypt. It's tough to get there. But now you see what happens. It says in verse 7, now the angel of the Lord found her by the spring of water. The angel of the Lord or the angel of Jehovah. The angel of, and then the proper name for God, Jehovah, the angel of the Lord, finds her. This term, angel of the Lord, is used 58 times in the Bible. It's used 11 times, it says angel of God, 58 times angel of the Lord. Every Christian theologian will tell you this is the pre-incarnate Jesus. This is God come in the flesh in the form of a man. He hasn't been born of the Virgin Mary yet. This is long before Mary, but this is a physical appearance of God in the flesh. And this is the first time in the Bible that it occurs. The very first time this occurs in the Bible is in this instance. When God appeared to Abram, God didn't appear to him in the form of a man. God spoke to him in a vision, but here he's appearing in the form of a man. And we're going to talk more about that the next time we talk about Genesis chapter 16, but I want to key in on something here, is that, is that uh, uh, he calls her by name. He says in verse 8, he says, Hagar. He calls her by name. We talked about this last time. The first time he spoke to Abram, he didn't call Abram by name. He just said, and God said, do this. Here, he calls her by name. This is meaningful. And then he says, Hagar, Sarai's maid. He reminds her of her position. He reminds her of her position. He says, where have you come from and where are you going? Now we know, we, we know that again, this is God speaking directly through her. This is not just some angel. And we know that from verse 10, it says, Moreover, the angel of the Lord, the angel of Jehovah, said to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants. So this is God speaking. This is not an angel saying, God has given you a message. Here's what it is. This is actually the angel of the Lord. This is a physical appearance. Now, you say, well, well Jewish scholars would never agree that this is a, a, a physical manifestation of the Lord. And that's not true. There are rabbinic scholars that say that, and particularly when you read the rabbinic scholars prior to the life of Jesus, because they don't like to authenticate the fact that God has come in the flesh. But when you read the writings prior to the coming of Jesus, then you, you see more of that. So this angel says to her, he addresses her as Hagar, Sarai's maid. Then he says, where have you come from and where are you going? Two questions are embodied in that one sentence. Where have you come from? And where are you going? It's like, doesn't God already know this? No, he's asking her so that she can think about this. Parents do this to their kids all the time. They ask their children questions 
so that their children can answer this question, so that the children can think about this, this Socratic method of teaching. When a professor often asks a question of the class, it's not like, oh boy, I forgot. Could you help me out here so that I can teach this class? No, you ask the question in a Socratic mode so that you're, you're trying to draw from them a response. And so he's trying to draw from her a response. He says, he, he says to her, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. So she only answered the first part. She only answered half of his question and not the second half. She didn't say that she's on her way to Egypt. And again, we're only inferring that she's on her way to Egypt because this is en route to Egypt. This is several days journey southwest on her way to Egypt. And she is right, right on the edge of the wilderness there, that wilderness territory where, where the children of Israel were going to eventually spend 40 years. She's right on the edge of that wilderness. And so from that wilderness back into Egypt is, say, another, another 10 days fast walk, 20 days if you're not walking fast. And, you know, she's got to worry about water and all these other things. Now, there was a spring of water there. And this is, again, this is the first reference to a spring of water being there. And, and, uh, uh, but there's a spring of water there, and that's why she's hanging out there, because she's got water. If you go to that territory, if you go to that land today, you're like, there's no way I'm walking out in that desert without carrying like 20 pounds of water with me. Because it's frightening to think about walking out in that desert. But what happens when a person leaves their home? There's a verse in, in Proverbs chapter 27, verse 8. Proverbs 27, verse 8 says, Like a bird that wanders from her nest, so is a man who wanders from his home. Like a bird that wanders from her nest, so is a man who wanders from, her, from his home. So when a person leaves home, it's never good. When a man says, I'm leaving this place, it's never good. When a woman says, I'm leaving this place, it's never good. It's like a bird leaving their nest. They're going to open themselves up to all sorts of attack. So when you get really frustrated in marriage, remember this. Don't leave. Do not leave the marriage. Things are going to come up. You're going to have arguments and you're going to say, I'm out of here. And arguments come up, but you just deal with it. I remember when I was a graduate student, so I got married after my first year of graduate school. And I never worked nights. I'd come in early in the morning. I'd leave my house at 6 in the morning, So, I'd, but I was always home for dinner. I'd almost never work nights unless there was some reaction that was pulling me back that I had to work it up or something. But I, I really tried to time my reaction so I didn't have to go back in the evening. And one day, I walked in the lab at night, in the evening. And one, one guy who works in the lab, and I'll tell you, unbelievers can be exceedingly perceptive. I walk in the lab, he looks up at me, he says... What are you doing here? What, did you have a fight with your wife? And he was absolutely right. <laughs> I had an argument with Jereen and I stormed out. Well, where am I going to go? I have nowhere to go. <laughs> so I went to the lab. <laughs> and, and, uh, uh, but I was coming back. I was only going to the lab and then I went back home. You don't want to stay out. You don't want to do that. And that's, that's, that's what's happening here. This is normal life. You just see normal life happening here. But the angel says, the angel of the Lord said to her in verse 9, return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. But Lord, you don't know what I'm going through there. 
She's abusive. She's abusive. I mean, I'm, I'm going to call, I don't know, Woman Protective Services or whatever was available then. And I'm going to have her, you know, arrested or something. She's abusive. The Lord knows what she was going through. And the Lord sends her back. He says, return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. Remember, all of this was instigated by the way she had despised Sarai. That's what started all of this. She was under authority of Sarai. She was under Sarai's authority. And the Lord sends her back under authority. When we run from under authority, it is never good. Now, I'm not saying that if you are in a physically abusive relationship, you have to endure that. You can get out of a physically abusive relationship, but you want to seek to have reconciliation. You want to seek to have reconciliation. Go to the church, get help, have the pastor talk to the, the other party. This is what the church is for. Now, most people don't even have enough of a relationship in the church that they can appeal to the church. They're not going to the church. How can I speak to the pastor about my husband that's abusing me? The pastor doesn't know you. There's no pastor that knows your husband. Or if you say, well, I've attended that church like twice. Well, how do you expect them to know you? Become a member of a church. Become, a, 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 become one with the church and people know you. And then the pastor has a relationship with you. And then he can speak to the other party. You can begin to get some help. But this whole thing of understanding authority is what we want to look at today. It's so important to understand authority. We don't understand it today. And how did Jesus speak about authority? I want to look at one passage here. One passage in Luke chapter 7. Passage in Luke chapter 7. We're going to read verses 1 through 10. Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. When he had completed all his discourse in the hearing of the people, he went to Capernaum. And a centurion's slave who was highly regarded by him was sick and about to die. And when he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave. When they came to Jesus, they earnestly implored him, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this to him, for he loves our nation... And it was he who has built us our synagogue. Now Jesus started on his way with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. Okay, so there, so Jesus goes to Capernaum. That's up in the north. That's the sort of the hometown where Jesus is from, from Capernaum. That's up by, by uh, uh, the, the, the Sea of Knesseret the Sea of, of Galilee up there. <clears throat> and um, uh, a centurion sends some Jewish elders to Jesus because he had a slave who was highly regarded by him. So this is a, this is a, a, a Roman centurion. He's, o- he's over a hundred troops. He's a man of power in that region. And he has a slave who he highly regards. And this slave is sick. So he asks some Jewish elders to go to Jesus and appeal to Jesus so that Jesus would heal his slave. So all of a sudden you see that this man has faith that Jesus can do a healing. So he must have heard about Jesus or seen Jesus in the past for him to have this kind of respect and honor and faith that Jesus can do this. 
but he sends some Jewish elders to ask on his behalf. Well, why? Well, because Jesus is Jewish. Jesus, did you know that? Jesus is Jewish. He was not Christian. There was no Christian in those days. Jesus was Jewish. And so he sent some Jewish elders. Well, why would the Jewish elders do this for him? Well, they go to Jesus and they say, He is worthy for you to grant this to him, for he loves our nation, and it was he who built us our synagogue. So there were some Roman soldiers that weren't all bad. This Roman soldier loved the nation of Israel. He loves our nation. So this is a believer in the God of Israel from among the Gentiles. He loves our nation and he built us our synagogue. Who's going to take their money and their time and their assets and pay for a bunch of stinking Jews synagogue among a Roman soldier? Very, very few people. Would you take your money and, uh, you know, build some Hindu temple? Probably not. But this guy has such regard for the children of Israel and their faith and the God of Israel. He built them this. So they, they appeal on his behalf and they go to Jesus. And what does Jesus do? Jesus does say, well, nope. I don't go to Gentiles. I'm called to the nation of Israel. He did that on other occasions. Why didn't he do it here? Because there was a promise made to Abraham, made to Abram. Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who bless you, I will bless. This man has blessed the children of Abraham. As soon as Jesus hears that this man loves the nation and has built them a synagogue, he says, I'm on my way. Let's go. Let's go heal this man's slave. Jesus remembers the goodness that was done the promise that was made to Abraham. You want to have blessing in your life? Don't come against the Jewish people. I'm just telling you, don't come against the Jewish people. When I hear people speak against the Jewish people, I'm like, you don't know what you're doing. You don't have to agree with their politics. You don't have to agree with, with, with the politics. But just don't even say it. Don't even voice it. Just leave them alone. You want to bless them? Bless them and you'll be blessed. Curse them and you'll be cursed. Remember, it is, if even if they disesteem you, I will harm them. Remember, the two words were different. Those who curse you, I will curse. It's not the same words. It's those who disesteem you. Just those who disesteem you, I will harm. Jesus remembers those who bless you, I will bless. Jesus is on his way. He's going right on his way. As soon as he hears that this man cared for the nation. And then the man hears that Jesus is coming to his house and he sends some of his friends to intercept Jesus as he's on his way to the house. It says, now Jesus started on his way in verse 6. Now Jesus started on his way with them. This is in Luke chapter 7, verse 6. Jesus started on his way with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further for I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. So remember the Jewish leaders had said, he's worthy for you to get this. They didn't understand how high Jesus is, that this is the son of God. This man understood better than the Jewish leaders. The Jewish leaders said, he's worthy for you to do this. And the man says, I'm not, I'm not even worthy for you to come under the roof of my house. This man really understood the God of Israel and really understood the concept of the Son of God. He says, for this reason, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But just say the word and my servant will be healed. 
For I also am a man placed under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to the other, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him. And he turned and he said to the crowd that was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. So Jesus has his friends intercept, uh, uh, the centurion has his friends intercept Jesus and say, here's what the centurion says, don't even bother coming to his house. He's not worthy. He feels himself not worthy for you to be under the roof of his house. But he says this, I am a man under authority. I understand authority. I say to this soldier, do this, and he does it. I say to my slave, do this, and he does it. All you got to do is speak the word. Don't even trouble yourself. Just speak the word. He says, I am a man under authority, meaning that I understand authority. If you understand authority, what does that mean? You don't even have to come. Just speak the word. It's as good as done because you're in charge of this place. You're king over all the earth. Just say it. It's done. Verse 9, when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him. You will never see Jesus marveling at the faith of a Jew or any of his apostles, which were all Jewish. He never marveled at their faith. He actually marveled at their unbelief. Here, he marvels at the man's faith. Jesus equates the understanding of authority with faith. You say, what is faith? It's kind of a nebulous concept. The Bible says, let me nail it home for you. It's understanding authority. How's that? It's relating properly to authority. Jesus said, it says, he marveled at him. And turning, he said to the crowd that was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. That didn't mean just in his three-year ministry. Jesus has been dealing with the nation of Israel from the beginning. From the time of Abraham. Nobody, not David, not Abraham, not Moses, nobody has had faith like I see this guy. Nowhere in Israel. Remember, Jesus is timeless. Nowhere in Israel have I seen anybody with such great faith as this Roman Gentile centurion. Because he understands authority. The man understands his own unworthiness and then he understands authority. Jesus said, fine, won't bother going to his house. It's done. His slave is healed. It's the understanding of authority. All of us are under authority. We all work for somebody. I am under the president of the university, but not just under him. I have a chair of my department, a chairperson of my department. That chairperson is much younger than me. In fact, I help hire these people when they're assistant professors. They move their way on up and they become chair. You say, well, why don't you become chair? I don't want to be chair. I mean, there's no way. I mean, that's a thankless position. I don't want to be chair. People only get upset with you. They never thank you for doing them anything. And, and I don't want to be chair. I've learned how to say no in multiple languages. Um, but but uh, uh, so I admire what they do. So these people who are chair these days, they're much younger than me. I hired them. But now they're the chair of my department. 
So I must honor them as chair. I must honor them. Because I'm a person under authority. Above me is the chair of the department. Above him is the dean, so I'm also under the dean. Above the dean is the provost, so I'm also under the provost. And above the provost is the president. I have to be careful what I say about them. I work for them. They don't work for me. Everybody is under authority. This angel of the Lord said to Hagar, go back under her authority. He didn't say, oh, she's a wonderful woman. No, she wasn't wonderful to her. He says, but you go back under her hand. You go back under her authority. You don't despise her and things will go better for you. Don't despise authority or your authority is going to really come against you. If you hate your boss, your boss senses it. Your boss knows it. If you speak poorly about your boss, your boss knows it. They'll sense it and you'll be treated accordingly. And so when people tell me they have trouble with their boss, I always tell them, the Bible says you overcome evil with good. You do good acts for them. Find out, does, does, your, does your boss like Starbucks? Go and buy him Starbucks. Just, just bless him with that. One young lady said, you know, I work for these guys and they just, they just, you know, I, I said, what do they like? What do they like? Oh, I don't know. They're always talking about hunting and fishing and stuff like that. It's like, oh, that's so bad. Here's what you do. I want you to go and you get some gun magazines, not the shooting type of magazines, but the, the magazines you read. Go, go to the store and just buy it and just give it to them. Just give it to them. And she said she did that and they were like, wow, this is great. This is great. You do something. You honor authority. If your boss tells you something to do that is, that is illegal, if your boss, you don't have to do it. If he tells you something to do that's immoral, you don't have to do it. But there's many things that they want us to do that we just have to do it. If there's some better way, you can go and appeal to them. There are ways of appealing to them, but it's understanding authority. When Daniel was told that he had to eat this meat that was sacrificed to idols, he appealed. He first prayed and then he appealed. He says, could there be another way? And the Lord gave him another way. But this understanding authority, and the Bible doesn't presuppose that everybody is, is, is good in authority. In fact, in fact, there's a verse in Daniel chapter 4, verse 17. Daniel chapter 4, verse 17, it says, the sentence is by decree of the angelic watchers and the decision is the command of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and he bestows it on whom he wishes and sets it, sets over it the lowliest of men. Sometimes your boss is the lowliest of men. It doesn't say that the Lord sets bosses over you which are the grandest of men and the most compassionate and the most kind. No, the Bible says just the opposite. Sometimes He sets people in leadership who are the lowliest of men in Daniel 4.17. Sometimes the lowliest of men are set in leadership. It's not a matter that I'm smarter than my boss, I publish more papers than my boss. I mean, you know, just look at the metrics. No, that, that has nothing to do with it. They're the boss. It's understanding authority. Most people do not understand authority at all. When men's marriages are breaking up and they come to me, I say, it doesn't surprise me that it's breaking up, that your wife never listens to you. You have no authority in the church. You don't, you don't submit yourself to the authority in the church. 
The pastor doesn't even know you. The leadership doesn't even know you. You won't even join the church. And all of a sudden, you're worried about your marriage breaking up. You have no authority in your life, so everybody under you doesn't acknowledge you as authority. Whatever man sows, that he shall also reap. Remember, you sow one seed, you get 10,000 seeds back, kernels of corn back. So one kernel of corn, you get 10,000 back. You sow disobedience to authority, not acknowledging authority. Everybody under you will not acknowledge you. Understanding authority is so important even in the body of Christ. It's an important parameter for us to understand. In 1 Peter chapter 5, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, it says, Therefore I exhort the elders among you, as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and partaker also of the glory to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. So he's telling the leaders in the church, people should voluntarily be coming because of your service, because of your willingness to help them. You're not lording it over them. I don't tell young people what to do. I mean, young people tell me, you know, I'm thinking about marrying this person. What, What do you think? And, you know, I, I want to see are the two believers. That's the first thing. If they're not both believers, I say no. The Bible says no. But if they're both believers, I'm very careful about saying, no, don't do it. I mean, because I don't, you know, who am I? I'm not God. But I will, if there's hesitations I have there, I say, look, you know, you, you, you I just want you to know, you know, as I've talked to this young woman and, and you got a tiger by the tail here. And, uh, um, you know, it's, it, it, it may not be an easy individual. Or I'll talk to this young lady and I'll say, you know, this guy, I've interviewed him. I've talked with him. He's a hothead. And you're going you're gonna to experience this in your marriage. I mean, he blows up really pretty easy. I just asked him a few questions and he just started getting angry with me. But that's part of the test. I'm just asking him delicate questions because I want to see how he reacts. Because... Because delicacies happen in, in marriages where there's things that happen that I would just want to... And it, so I'll tell her, you know, the guy's a hothead. You know, he's a believer, so yes, you could marry him, but he, I just want you to know. I'm not lording it over them. He says in, in verse 4 of, of, of uh, um, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse, verse 4, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfailing crown of glory. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you at the proper time. So you, you see that, that um, He tells younger men, learn how to submit to these things. The Bible says the same thing to younger women. Learn how to... Learn things from the older women. The Bible talks about in Titus chapter 2. It talks about younger women learning from the older women. Not that older women, you need to do this. No, the older women don't do that. They just tell you what good behavior is. And I, I can remember Shireen many times correcting young women. And, and I remember this, this young girl, she, she, came, she came on Sunday and, and uh, she had just rolled out of bed. And... You know, her hair was this way and her clothes were... Just, she looked like she just rolled out of bed. And I remember Shireen just very gently saying, 
I want you to look good. When you come out of your home in the morning and you come to church, I want you to do your hair nicely and I want you to put on some nice clothes. It's going to make you function better in the world. And this girl has come back many times over the years and come back and reminded Shireen and my friend, you are the one who told me, you're the one who taught me that I got to look good when I come to church. You're the one who told me not to go out when my hair's all undone. You're the one who taught me this. And then I remember another girl speaking up. Yeah, and you were the one who taught me this too, she said to her. You're the one who taught me to dress nicely and always dress professionally. And so my wife does this. It's not like if you don't do this, you're not going to get lunch. No soup for you. It was, it was, it was not that. It was this instruction, learning instruction. Now I appeal to the unbeliever, to the one here who does not know Jesus. I urge you to come under the authority of Jesus Christ. Not because he wants to lord it over another person, but because he means it for your good. If you do not know him, come to him. He is so gentle, so gracious, so loving, so kind. He is the one who instructs us. You come under the banner of his authority. When we come under the banner of his, his authority, then he instructs us to come under the, the banner of the authorities that he places over us. And then those who are under us they naturally move under. We get rebellion in our ranks when we ourselves are rebellious. Whatever a man sows, that he shall also reap. Don't be rebellious against the Lord. Come to Jesus. If you have not accepted Him this day, if you've not accepted Him in your life, I urge you to come to Him. I urge you, come to Him. Don't stay away from Him. Don't let your lives be wasted like this. Don't let years be wasted. Don't let relationships be wasted. Come to Him. He is a loving God. He is the one who comes to this woman, Hagar, and He says, it's going to be alright. You go back. You go back. I'll teach you how to do it. Don't despise that woman and things will go better for you. Things will go better for you. He is the one who instructs us. The Bible says if we do not come and under his authority, we are slaves of the devil. We are slaves to evil. If you're not in Jesus Christ, you are a slave to evil. It is very hard to do that which is good. You could do that which is good for a day, but then it'll overcome you. Without having Christ, it's very hard to walk in obedience. So I urge you this day, come to Jesus. He is good and kind and gracious and loving. Come to him this day. To those of you who are believers, I say, learn what authority is. Learn to respect authority. Learn to speak respectfully of authority. Those people who are in authority over you, speak respectfully of them. doesn't mean that authority doesn't need to be corrected. It often does. I have, I have appealed to the pastor. I go to the pastor. I mean, I, I know Roger. He's a friend of mine. I remember when he was just, just a tall, skinny youth pastor. And, and, uh, um, and so I've known him for 20 years. And so when I see things happening, you know, I'll say, let's go out to lunch together and, and I'll talk with him about different things that I see. And he's appreciative. I'm appealing to him because he's my authority. And he's appreciative to get my viewpoints on these things to help him to do better. We want the input of people. When you're in authority, you want the input, but it has to come in the right way. You don't come and say, look, you're doing this all wrong. This is what you got to do. No, it's, it's not like this. It's kind, it's gracious. It's appealing to them and to saying, have you considered doing it this way? Have you considered this? Or why is it done this way? 
Why is it done this way? Could you explain it to me? Might it be better to consider doing it such and such a way? And proper leadership is going to hear this. But I urge you to understand authority because Jesus equates authority, the understanding of of authority, with faith. With faith. Let Jesus marvel at your faith because you understand authority. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for all that you teach us through the Word of God. Father, I pray first of all for the unbelievers here, that they would pray this very day, Lord, forgive me, for I am a sinner. Forgive me for not coming under your authority. Forgive me for my sins. I believe Jesus is Lord. I believe he has risen from the dead. Lord, I pray for these young people who do not know you, that they would pray this very day and ask Jesus into their hearts that they would be saved. Save the sinners this day, I pray. Oh Lord, save them. And Lord Jesus, I pray for the believers who are here, that they would understand authority lest they crater their lives by not understanding authority. Father, I pray that they would understand authority in the local church and understand the value of that, the protection that comes by being under authority, the security that comes by being under authority, that they would understand the authority of the local church. Father, please cause them to understand authority in the workplace, in the university. Cause them, Lord, to understand authority and that you with them marvel at them and equate that with faith. Lord, please take this message and just burn it right into the hearts of these young people. Even as your word says that your word is like fire. Father, burn it into their hearts, I pray. For the glory of Jesus in his name. Amen.